This is an ABC podcast. You're going in there and the government's saying this is a big holistic review and it was like ordering a pizza at your home and you open up the case and there's only three quarters of the pizza. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Save Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvel as the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And soon we're going to be joined here in The Party Room by one of our favourites, Cameron Stewart, Chief International Correspondent at The Australian, to talk about the Defence Strategic Review, or as those in the know call it, the DSR, was released this week, billed as the most significant defence review in decades. It's essentially outlining a, a restructured Australian defence policy, which the review finds, quote, isn't fit for purpose. There's a $19 billion price tag attached, but that's really just a down payment. It'll cost a lot more than that over the coming decades. So not everyone is on board with the overhaul PK. We're going to get Cam's expertise on that shortly. But defence isn't the only area where the Albanese government and the budget is under pressure. The budget is only a week and a half away now. Woohoo, we love that. Um, but the calls for spending are getting louder by the day. I mean, this week, five Labor backbenchers publicly called for a significant boost to job seeker payments. This is a very expensive measure, and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has really been playing down expectations ahead of the budget. Uh, my job is to weigh up all the competing demands on the budget to do the right and responsible thing uh, to try and make it all add up. That's the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. But PK, uh, a bloke who knows a thing or two about federal budgets, is the former head of Treasury, Ken Henry. And this week, he took to the press to say that to not raise the job seeker rate would be cruel. Now, that's pressure, if you ask me. He also <laughs> made the point that one of the main arguments against raising it has always been that, oh, if you, if you make it too much, then people will have enough money in their pocket and they won't worry about going out to get a job. Basically, it'll be a disincentive to getting work. But Ken Henry points out that 80% of people on JobSeeker are on it for 12 months or more. 80%, that's a lot. So right now, at $50 a week in the tightest job market in decades, that tells us that it's not about the amount, which is $50 a day, it's about something else. There's something else getting in the way of people getting up and getting a job and that really needs to be looked at. So, you know, to, to lift job seeker to $70 a day, that's 90% of the single pension, would cost about $6 billion a year. So we are talking big bucks. How's the government going to handle this? You know, this is the Prime Minister who promised on election night, PK, that nobody will be left behind. What are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, he said no one would be left behind, but it wasn't a, a policy um, manifesto that every payment would go up. The government, I think, has been clear that it would would do things when it could afford them um, and methodically. So, you know, I'm not saying that people shouldn't hold them to a high standard. They should. But equally, uh, I think 
when you are making a budget, there are lots of competing issues all the time. And the big issue, in my view, is that they box themselves in so much when it comes to actually the revenue side, what comes in to Mm. the budget in terms of changing those settings that they can't deliver because of that boxing. They were so stung by the 2019 election loss, which they thought they could win. And, you know, that was the big, big, lots of taxes changed, negative gearing. Um, We had, you know, the franking credit. It's all of that. They were so traumatised mm. by that loss that um, they went with a what's been described as a small target approach where they didn't want to offer lots of big, scary ideas. But in doing so, they boxed themselves into not changing, well, pretty much anything, right? I mean, even the small change they made to superannuation comes in after the next election, which I think is wise because of their promise. But equally, it's really small. It's a small change. It's all that's so far been articulated. Mm. They're scared to touch the stage three tax cuts, again, because they boxed themselves into that promise. And now they they know there is a political sting to changing that, and there would be. But they're the ones that said those words that are leading to these consequences. So going back to the actual job seeker payment, we've got five backbenchers who have essentially four of them signing a letter, the other one tweeting about it, saying that they think there should be a rise to job seeker. That is significant. It is the first significant breakout, if you like, of Labor MPs saying what they really think at a time when the government clearly doesn't want to go down this road. Here we have a backbench that's sort of flexing a bit of its muscle, letting it be known what they really think. I personally think that's a healthy thing. I thought it was a healthy thing when it happened in the coalition government too, that that actually a party room and the caucus in this case, people stand for things and push their governments and, and the executive of the government. But the reason JobSeeker isn't going to rise in this big way in this budget is there are other demands on it. Now, we've previously talked about the other big call, which is from the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. It was set up by the government and led by Sam Mostyn to restore income support for single mothers and single parents, right? They can be men or women, but they are disproportionately women. At the moment, because of the Howard government change that was extended by the Gillard government, when your youngest child turns eight you go on a lower unemployment benefit. Now, we all know, Fran, you've raised kids. I'm currently raising kids. Eight is pretty young. And to suddenly lose 100 bucks a week in a cost of living crisis as well, it's a big deal, right, for those families. And so there's been a big campaign to restore it back to 16. I'm now pretty certain after many calls that they've landed on 14. There are last-minute calls, though, from many, uh, you know, even trying to call the Prime Minister, people who are very influential people trying to lobby to make sure it's 16. I think, though, and I feel pretty confident about this, they've landed at 14. And I, I tried to grill the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, about this. What's really significant about Katie Gallagher, and I've gone on about this, but I think it's a really big deal. I've watched a lot of Finance Ministers and Treasurers, as have you. They're largely blokes. And... Uh, they're not blokes that have lived on single parent payments, are they, Fran? But actually, Katie Gallagher has. And I think that's a bit of a game changer, to be honest. Here she is speaking on breakfast. You know, I did live on that payment. It changed my life. It saved me. Um, you know, it it, it uh, gave me the support I needed to, to get myself together, uh, to look after my baby and to get back into work. So I 100% understand uh, the importance of these payments. They are life-changing and um, so important. That's Katie Gallagher, and I thought that was quite an emotional um, 
moment in that interview where she talks about her lived experiences, and I'm, look, anyone who knows me knows I'm big on how lived experiences do affect the way we think about things sometimes, and I think those lived experiences are very powerful. There's the Prime Minister too, raised by a single mother. I think these things, they've been factors in that room as they've deliberated. Now, it's a big shift that they're moving on this, but because there's such high expectations on a Labor government, as there should be, as you're right, the, the Prime Minister saying no one left behind, it still may not be good enough for people, even though I do think this is a significant moment. Uh, yeah, that's true. It is a significant moment. Well, let's wait and see what they do. But you're right. Katie Gallagher, um, the first finance minister to have lived on that payment in a government led by a prime minister who grew up in public housing with a single mother on welfare. So there are expectations, but there's also an understanding at government, I think. Um, PK, just before I you know, respond, I, I do want to correct something I said here on the pod last week um, when I said that Jenny Macklin was the Labor minister who oversaw and always regretted that decision to lock in the single payment eligibility age when a child turns eight back in 2012. She was a member of the cabinet that made that decision under the Gillard government, but she wasn't the minister. But, you know, the cabinet discussion we know was a contested one. Bill Shorten, Anthony Albanese, Jenny Macklin and some others have said for some years now that they regretted that decision. They got it wrong. So I I just want to put that right. Apologies to Jenny Macklin, who now actually leads the government's economic inclusion task force, which is leading calls for job seeker to be increased. But PK, if the government does, um, as you suggest, as you uh, seem to know, that, that they can lift this threshold to 14 years of age, um, I think that will probably be a down payment enough for now to get support in the community that's been calling loudest for this. But any lower than that, because there's been reports that they've settled on 13, for instance, and that's, you know, a lot of kids aren't even at high school or are just no. starting high school at 13. And the research tells us that the first couple of years of high school are a really important year for kids' development and, and a stress like, you know, poverty being heightened at that time. In other words, you know, 100 bucks going from the, from the already low family budget and other elements as well can have a really significant deleterious effect on a young adult's mental health and social development. So in other words, PK, if you're going to cut $100 plus off the family budget at that age, it will take a toll on a young person's life later in life. And that has real costs associated with it, financial and social. So the government needs to take a look at the net costs of poverty alleviation here, not just the dollars to the budget bottom line of the single parent payment. And that's why I think that's been in the government's thinking here, people putting that argument to the the economic task force and others to try and get it up as close to 16 as they can. And 14, I think, will you know almost satisfy some. I think the government will lift some of these payments, like JobSeeker, a bit in the budget. I think they will. We don't know, but I think they will. Um, But suggest a plan to do more in the future after the next election. So that pitch will become part of its re-election strategy, along maybe with some revenue measures to pay for them, which, as you say, we haven't seen yet. That's that's where I think we might see this Labor government Mm. heading in the budget. Yeah, well, the Treasurer's made it clear there will be a cost of living package in the budget, energy bill relief, and now uh, the promise to reduce the cost of basic medicines, which was announced too, making it possible to to buy double the medicine for the price of one script or, or more than 320 products treating common conditions. That's what it will cover. And the government says that will save Australians up to $180 a year. So all of these things do matter, and particularly people on low incomes, they matter a lot, actually. They have a big impact on people who are literally counting every every dollar. Now, 
this this is going to be really the centrepiece of the budget and things are getting quite real for the budget. Mm-hmm. We also got this week the the announcement of where the latest inflation figure is at. It's at 7% now. It's it's down from 7.8. It's a far cry, though, from the 2 to 3% target range, which the RBA wants it to be in. And if you look at some of those items which are not discretionary, you know, you have to buy food, um, inflation is a big problem. Now, as we, we've mentioned, Fran, at the beginning, big budget, big pressures in different areas. We've already talked about AUKUS previously, but the big story this week outside of these welfare payments and budget positioning was the Defence Strategic Review, um, commissioned last year by the Albanese government. Now, it comes amid the most challenging strategic circumstances since World War II. So it's a big deal, and it was it was all a process that was started under the previous government. It's also a show-me-the-money moment. Should we bring our guest in, Fran? Let's do it. See if he can work it out where the money's going to come from. Cameron Stewart is the Chief International Correspondent at The Australian, and he's our guest in the party room. Cam, welcome. Thanks, BK. Thanks, Fran. Hey, Cam. Great to have you back to talk about this Defence Strategic Review because I know you will have read all the fine print of it by now um, and it's got a, a, a price tag of $19 billion over the forward estimates over the next few years. Um, mostly that's baked into the budget or some of it will be paid for by reallocating defence spending. Now, the Shadow Defence Minister, Andrew Hastie, says, is digging rocks out of the same quarry? In other words, he's saying that this review came up basically with the same direction and conclusions that the Coalition's 2020 Defence Review did, worsening strategic circumstances, the need for more missile power, China the looming threat. Cam, is that right? Has this review told us much we don't already know or signalled a significant change in the dete- in our strategic direction? What do you think? Yes, look, look, it has. I mean, with the 2020 review, that was uh, not much had been done since then. So that's really the point. Um, so the government has basically uh, enunciated a new strategic direction because they say something actually has to be done here. So I think with the review, the important thing about this review, um, Fran, is that it really flips the strategic rationale for Australia's defence on its head compared to what it had been uh, in the past. I mean, until this week, it was 40 years ago that Australia's defence policy was rewritten. It was rewritten in 1987, following a 1986 report by Professor Paul Dibb. And at that stage, the world was obviously a very different place. Australia was quite wounded still by the Vietnam War, 500 soldiers lost and an unnecessary war in lots of people's minds. So it was a very isolationist defence policy that was written at that time. It was a policy that basically uh, only focused on the defence of continental Australia. And that has held firm for 40 years, despite the fact that in the last decade, of course, we've seen the enormous rise of China as an economic power and as a strategic power. You're now seeing China throwing its weight around. And so really, it was very much overdue for the government to have an updated strategic policy. And the fundamental change is that the government has reinterpreted the notion of defending Australia by saying that Australia's interests actually lie offshore as much as onshore, sea lanes, trading routes, etc., we have to defend Australia offshore and we need a new defence force to do that. Now, Cam, the review called for defence spending to increase extensively in the coming decades. And if you want to do everything the review says, it, it makes sense. You, you have to if, if you're really going to achieve any of that. 
Uh, Labor agreed to the former government's defence spending projections and the current defence budget, I think, is about 2.1% of GDP. Uh, The Albanese government has resisted putting a figure on the flagged increase in this review and, in in fact, has been criticised for that. I pushed the Deputy Prime Minister and the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, on this on breakfast this week. Here's what he had to say. It will definitely be beyond uh, 2%. uh, we're, we're at 2% now and, and the funding trajectory that we inherited already goes beyond that. And what we're saying is we will need more than that. That was the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister, Richard Miles. So, Cam, as we face the biggest strategic threat since World War Two, you know, very dramatic language being used, is the government essentially promising that defence budgets will continue to increase as a percentage of GDP every year? Well, it's a strange thing. They're saying they'll definitely have to be um, higher defence spending as a percentage of GDP after four years, but they're saying there'll be nothing like that within the four-year period. And, you know, this is, I think, the disconnect and the weakness uh, in the in the review because they're saying it's urgent, it's massive, it's sweeping, it's historic, et cetera, et cetera, um, but we are not having any more money put towards defence in the next four years as we had in the past. And, of course, that gives the government the political benefit of this great fancy announcement without actually putting any more money overall to defence during that period. And it's interesting because they were very very critical of the coalition governments uh, in the past, and I think rightly so, for doing huge announcements, not following up and not paying for them. And so I'm not saying the government will do that, but the government certainly invites scepticism, I think, by not putting more money into it in the first four years, because it means they're going to go to the election uh, without having uh, much pain for taxpayers on defence, whereas the taxpayers will have to have a lot of pain in the following four years because they cannot avoid higher increased defence spending given these commitments. Yeah, but Cam, is there something to it, given you know the, the immense price tax, the huge price tax associated with defence procurements and the, you know, the terrible woes that seem to befall them before they even get into use here in Australia. You know, they they over budget by billions, or they never get delivered, or they're behind technological times before they're even delivered. Is it maybe not wise to not lift the spending straight away until we sort out? what we've got coming down the pipeline, if it's what we need, redirect if we need it, and also put in more checks and balances. I know government after government talks about clamping down on defence procurement, but really there seems to be an awful lot of of money spent and an awful lot of rent seekers in this place. Maybe it's a good idea not to open the tap straight away. Well, you know, it's one of those things because the trouble with defence is that uh, they often um, get around start a project and it goes on and on and on forever. And uh, it, it's just astonishing how that, that history keeps repeating itself. So they're trying to break this cycle and they should get credit for trying to do that. But, you know, I just think it's a case that they should have thrown more money early on to really show that they're, they're going to do it because there really is a But to do history. what? What would they spend the money on? What, buying missiles off the shelf? Or so? I mean, we, we don't have a missile stock. Is that the first problem? Well, that is that is one problem, but I mean that basically that they should be throwing money at the most obvious things they can do to increase readiness, mobility, to harden up air bases in the north, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's more that they could have done more quickly, I think. But I think overall the strategy that they've got is a very sound one and is a sensible one. The thing I think, Fran, is have they got the political will to push it through in the longer term? Because so many governments have made these sort of noises and just don't follow through. So the review will will see the government reshape the army, right? That's the big boom announcement. Um, (laughs) And again, this began under the previous government, says that we need to enter this missile age and it's really a politician's way of saying that it will reallocate funding from the army. How significant is this? Because it's been kind of... 
uh, criticised by the opposition that worries that they're, they're kind of cannibalising army. But what, how, how big a deal is all of that? Well, it's, it's quite a big deal in one way. The army is actually... Um, very popular institution in Australia, mm. and well, they fix everything. Well, they fix everything. <laughs> Tom, we've got a problem. That's a problem, though. Bushfires yeah. and things, exactly. But also, I mean, they've shouldered the burden of of most of the the modern wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Vietnam, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, even uh, peacekeeping Rwanda and Somalia, etc. And so, you know, there's a, a sense of that they do the heavy lifting, if you like. But what this review does is it basically really pairs the army back. They're, they've lost all their promised armoured vehicles, or 400 to 100. 30 or so, they're going to be repurposed to sort of go up to northern Australia and, and have missiles fired off their trucks and uh, be more of a sort of amphibious kind of force like the US Marines. But it's definitely a downscaling, despite what the government is spinning this. It's basically taking from the army and giving to the Navy. And the, what they're saying here is, look, well, politely saying that China is, is the likely adversary, if there is one, and Australia is surrounded by water. So you need Navy and Air Force, and that's the priority. And is that the right priority, do you think? I mean, I know there's a range of views on this and Andrew Hasey is very worried about cutting back of the um, the armoured vehicles, saying that, you know, if, if you've got missiles deployed, you need armoured regiments and battalions around it to protect them, for instance. I mean, he's very concerned about that. But is that just people sort of fighting the, the last war? And is this a government <laughs> trying to, to look to the future or a review that looks to the future? What do you think? That's a good question. I, I think it does make sense. I think it really does make sense. I mean, there was an absurd amount of armoured vehicles they were going to get 400 or so. My mm-hmm. God, what are they going to do with those? You know, <laughs> I, I really think that's the case. And also something has to give here. I mean, we've got to be realistic about these budgets. We're getting eight nuclear-powered submarines. I mean, they're going to cost a bomb. And all this other stuff, we're getting missiles, et cetera, et cetera. Something has to give. You just can't have the full, the full pie here. And we still don't know how much... Mm we're going to ultimately pay because there were some big holes in the review which didn't actually tell us what certain parts of the armed forces were going to be like, like the surface fleet, the Navy, for example. And there's lots of new reviews too. So were, many reviews. It was like a yes minister moment, PK, <laughs> being, being in the lockup. Like we're looking and the actual review itself says this is not just another review. This is seismic. This is everything. And you kept turning the pages and there was another, another review, review, another review, <laughs> another review. And the big hole in it in one way, is, it's just a short-term hole, but still, is this review into the future of the Navy surface fleet. Now, that's a $60 billion review. That's that's a sort of number we're talking about of you know, how many ships we're going to have, destroyers, frigates. What are we best. reviewing here? I mean, what what are we what were we planning on and what might the change look like? Well, well exactly. And why, well, and why wasn't this included in the bigger review? I mean, it's like you going in there and the government saying this is a big holistic review and it was like ordering a pizza at your home and you open up the case and there's only three quarters of the pizza. Like mm. I don't know why they didn't actually have that that review. So what they're going to do, they're going to try and work out how many ships they're going to get and they're probably going to cut a few things like the big 45 billion dollar hunter frigate program they probably mm. reduce the number of ships there they're going to buy smaller ships like they're called corvettes why because they figure that in in this modern modern era of warfare you need smaller heavily armed uh, more ships is harder to knock off basically it's pretty simple that, so that smaller that's ships and bigger subs yeah they don't want really expensive big giant ships and only four of them they'd rather have like you know 10 smaller ones basically that's the theory and the subs of course yes cam this criticism of more review and another review and another review. You know, are we taking pot shots at the wrong things here? Does it really matter if we take an extra six months to get something like this review of naval spending, $60 billion worth of future spending, correct? Does it matter if it's done incrementally? 
Look, it doesn't matter in the long term if it's done right. And you're absolutely right. You've got to get these decisions right because we've got them wrong so often in the past. But there's also a real culture in defence of review after review after review. Mm. And I guess the rhetoric of the government here was this is urgent. This is the worst strategic circumstance in 80 years, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to do something, boom, boom, boom. And it just wasn't great optics mm. to, to have a whole series of reviews on top of that. But look, you're right, absolutely right. In the long term... It doesn't matter. These these projects, God, they go for decades. Mm. You know, you just got to get them right because taxpayers will really feel the pain if they don't. Yeah. Now, the other big issue, which is sort of an issue we talk about in so many different fields, but is, is staff, is personnel. And the defence industry is facing the same dilemma that's been plaguing every sector in Australia or any t- sort of moment I talk on radio, it's always about this. Uh, Workforce, many more workers will be needed to fulfil these roles, but the unemployment level in Australia is very low and those working in defence need to fulfil a whole swathe of requirements. So it's not as easy as going, hey, we've got the people. It doesn't work like that, right? No, that's right. And especially because it's such strange jobs. I mean, some of them, you know, excellent in their own way, but very odd. I mean, you're on a ship going away for months at a time. You know, if you've got a family, that's very different. If you're a submarine, my God, that's even stranger. You know, lots of people um, do very remote work. I honestly think it's just the biggest challenge they have. Mm. Uh, and it's obviously especially with the submarines because you have to be nuclear trained. Mm. And that's a, that's another world altogether mm. we've got. You know, so we're starting from scratch in so many ways. I honestly think there's a debate the government hasn't had that they're going to have to have. And that is they just have to going to pay people a lot more to come to the armed forces. And that's going to hurt the budgets. It's going to be resisted amongst other portfolios, etc. But I just don't see how they're going to attract enough people without paying a lot more. And that's going to be contentious. Goes back to budget. Goes back to budget. You know, even before this Defence Strategic Review, there was people leaving the army. The retention rates were terrible and they already had a problem. So we've got to have a workforce that can just, you know, staff the army that we're talking about and the Navy and the Air Force. Yeah, and it's cyclical as well because when the mining industry booms, they steal them all. Yeah. And then we've got to have a trained workforce that can build these subs, these nuclear subs. As you say, that's a whole new industry, high level, high skilled. So we're talking about a different level of pay altogether. Then we've got to have the workforce that can build the missiles. We haven't even built those factories yet, and we're hoping that within two years, I think, we're going to have a, a manufacturing base for, for local missile manufacturing, which seems... What did the minister say? In the next couple of years. In the next in a couple of years, which is pretty loose. So these are big demands. But then, and PK mentioned it earlier, you know, we love the army because they fix everything, right? The change is wrought by climate change. We've got the floods, we've got the fires, we bring in the army. There is some reference in here to the fact that that is deteriorating the capacity of the army to fight as we needed to fight. Is the government looking at some kind of alternative force, civilian force or something to take that load off the army? Is that under consideration here? Yeah, they haven't clarified exactly what no, sort haven't. of force they would, but they, ha- they have said that the states have to lift, basically. They want the army to, to stop putting out bushfires, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting because, you know, the army's very good at doing that, and it's such great PR for the army, too, yeah. in, in lots of ways. It's quite interesting that they feel that it's taking the the army away from the necessary training to actually fight a war. I was a bit surprised to see that, to be honest. They've put down this approach, and there's been a lot of analysis about what's going to happen internally in Labor. You know, there's already a bit of disquiet about AUKUS. You know, it's only one year into the government. 
Will they stare down their back pension? I mean, we talked earlier, just Fran and I, about all these calls for welfare payments to increase, right? Yeah, yeah. How long is a piece of string? Um, will they be able to hold the line on this? This is, I think, the great question for this whole defence strategic review is can they and will they? Uh, you know, I mean, I think Labor, for a Labor government especially, have been really impressive in the way they've tried to rework this strategy to try and make it sensible uh, and relevant to, to Australia's defence needs. But it does require a lot more money. They've admitted that. And that will be the question. And they've obviously put it off for the next four years. But that is a massive debate in Australian politics. You know, to what degree will Australians, uh, we've got, say, about 2.1% of defence spending as a percentage of GDP at the moment, will they tolerate 2.5% mm. to pay for the submarines? If that means, I don't know, NDIS or uh, health, yeah. education, whatever. Um, what are the sacrifices they're actually willing to to have? Will Australians be that concerned about China uh, to want to push that through? Will they not? I think it's an absolutely fascinating future debate and it'll be a long-term debate as well. And it's going to require, if the government wants to pursue this, these defence strategic um, ambitions, they're going to have to be very, very strong to hold the line. Mm. And will they? That's a great question. And, you know, things are changing all over the place. Some of it, much of it, most of it outside of our control. And, you know, just look at the US. We've signed this AUKUS deal, but the US is now going to have the next election. It's likely going to be Trump versus Biden. What if Trump wins that? That's a whole different ball game in terms of reliability of that partner. So there's a lot of moving parts. Cam. Hold on to your hats. All right. Fantastic to have you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Cam. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time. And we have an audio question from Lily. Hi, Fran. Hi, PK. I'm 20 years old, and as a political nut, I hear a lot about how my generation has some massive political challenges ahead. Climate change, an aging population, housing, government debt, etc., etc. What I'm wondering is, is this a novel position, or has the same been said for previous generations? Thank you so much for making my Thursday each week. Oh, Lily, thank you so much for making our podcast this week. From two political nuts to you, um, <laughs> thanks for joining us. I've heard it before. I've been covering politics for a long, long time. I've done many panels over those years of, you know, younger voters talking about uh, the baby boomers and how, you know, the, this younger generation is going to bear the cost of the ageing population, going to bear the cost of rising education. You know, up until, you know, some years ago, education was free for baby boomers. And climate change, of course, has been around a while. But I think what we're seeing now is the research is in and this is the first generations who are going to have a lower standard of living than the pr previous generations. So that sig signifies things are worse. Certainly climate change is hitting now. We're having these massive costs for cleanups of catastrophic floods and cyclones and fires. And uh, that seems to be, uh, you know, a rising cost that is happening now that wasn't there before. Your policy changes over the years, especially the last few years, have meant that the cost of university has gone up um, significantly for some sectors and therefore the hex debts are growing for this generation now. I think that is irrefutable. Housing uh, costs are so high now. What are we seeing at the moment? Rents going up, you know, 23% a year in some capital cities. So it's an acute time right now. Uh, the um, the government debt you mentioned is acute right now. It's a trillion dollars. Um, that's because of the pandemic. I don't think that's a 
anything the boomers have done, so to speak, but it is irrefutably <laughs> the truth. So I think there is an argument now that these generations, the younger generations, are going to have a lot different life expectations, I think, to some degree, than the, the, their parents or even sometimes their grandparents. Um, you know, we already know that many young people are not expecting they'll ever be able to afford to buy a house. So they're already baking in, if you like, the notion that they will rent forever. These are significant changes. The shapes of our cities are changing to cope with these things. So um, I think it is fair to say that there is a burden falling on the younger generations. That's not to say there's not incredible benefits they're getting too from technology changes and, and many other many other changes like that. But I think it is fair to say that it is particularly difficult or high burden yeah, I think I think that's right. But you know, I don't want to sort of labour the point. But all all younger generations have had their different struggles, right? Um, and generational change is always on that. I'm reflecting on policy settings, on housing, and other things. There've often been shifts across different generations. But I think the more existential threats, things like as you say, climate change, are very real have arrived and uh, making life very bleak, I think, for younger people, which is why they're, they're getting sick of it. And uh, they've made it quite clear to policymakers. I suppose it's on them to listen now. Yeah, and I think that is going to require some policy responses that governments, state and federal, would never have dreamed of in the past. I mean, we have a real rental crisis at the moment. Something is going to have to shift. I don't get the sense we're going to see much, if anything, on that in this federal budget. But the, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have already talked about National Cabinet having to deal with this. So I doubt that it'll be rent freezes, but there'll be have to be some interventions, I think, to make it possible for people to afford to rent a house. I mean, we had that incredible statistic this week from Anglicare, which shows that of, of 46,000 rental listings across the weekend, just recently, only four were affordable for a single person on JobSeeker, and all of them were for rooms in share houses. So that's a radical shift. A lot of people are being left behind. Something is going to have to change, but we haven't seen what those responses look like yet. No, but it'll take some bold politicians to try and um, really capture the imagination of young people and be very serious about changing it. So keep sending your questions through. Uh, the voice ones are my particular favourite. It's an easy thing to do. You just email us after you record it, thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, of course, The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you're never without us. We'll be back in your feeds next week. That's it for The Party Room. See you, Fran. See you, PK. Attention, passengers. Hey, political nerds. It's time to get your heads out of Canberra. Look, I know, I know that's hard for you. It's Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. Uh, we're a travel show with, with no passports required. We're all about journeys of the mind. So, come fly with us over at Return Ticket on the ABC Listen app right now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.